All right, welcome back. Uh, today is Wednesday, September, no, no, October 7. And uh, today is Sutta Nipata 51, continuing Kokalika Sutta, uh, Tanasaro's write-up, a follower of Devadatta slanders Venerable Sariputta and Venerable Moggallana, and after suffering a painful disease, falls into hell immediately, and that's called anantarika, anantarika, meaning not antara, meaning no interval, karma, meaning immediate uh, return because of the nature of his activity. The sutta then gives a graphic description of sufferings awaiting him there. Last time I read through it, <clears throat> the heart of the sutta uh, where Gautama is addressing, or this may be also a composite sutta, where there were several people, uh, as well as Gautama, addressing Kokalika before his death, <clears throat> and then talking about his situation. Uh, the heart of the sutta, in terms of Buddha Dhamma teaching, I think, is the second half, which is Gautama explaining about Kokalika appearing in the Paduma lotus hell, red lotus hell, for engendering hatred in his heart against Sariputta and Moggallana, um, who were the two chief disciples, but particularly creating a schism in the Sangha, which is basically trying to harm the community, splitting by um, his hatred for those two, or his uh, tail-bearing or lying to Gautama about those two senior monks, <clears throat> to to cause harm to the community of those who are seeking virtue and release. That's kind of a big deal. And so hurting the people who are actively trying to purify themselves in virtue and seek release and be of service to others. <laughs> now you can say that everything's karmic, karmically just, and so everything that everybody experiences is fair in a karmic uh, measurement. Meanwhile, uh, in the present moment in time and space, uh, there are beings who are actively seeking uh, virtue and um, truth and uh, development and service. Uh, or those who are at least not making any trouble for anyone as well, and harming them, the innocent, um, and the virtuous or the seeking. Uh, carries a higher karmic weight, uh, liability, transgression, than doing the same harm to someone else. And so I want to read the Gautama's um, long uh, teaching on how, uh, to Kokalika and the others who were addressing him, uh, how one does evil and goes to hell. And this is the middle of the Kokalika Sutta. Translated by Tansarabhiku. Quote, Gautama, the line before is, This is what the Blessed One said. Having said that, that was something else he said. The well-gone one, the one well-gone, the teacher, said further, Surely, Gautama saying, quote, Surely, when a person is born, an axe is born in his mouth, with which he cuts himself. The fool saying a bad statement. So wrong speech. Whoever praises one deserving censure or censures one deserving praise accumulates wickedness with his mouth and in that wickedness finds no ease. 
So um, two forms of wrong speech there also. Um, not just saying things that are uh, harmful, but also deceptive, praising the harmful and censuring the virtuous. Next to nothing going on. Next to nothing is the bad throw when one loses money at dice, but great is the bad throw when one gets angered at those well gone, the seekers. For 100,000 Nirabuddhas and 36 and 5 Abuddhas, one who maligns noble ones, directing his, hearts and heart, his words and heart toward evil, goes to hell. He goes to hell, the one who asserts what didn't take place, meaning claims it happened when it didn't, as does the one who, having done, says, I didn't. And both low-acting people there become equal in hell, after death, in the place beyond. Whoever harasses an innocent man, a man pure, without blemish, the evil comes right back to the fool like fine dust thrown against the wind. And we'll see that in one of the chapters of the verses of Dhammapada. One devoted to the strings of greed slanders others with his word. Faithless, stingy, miserly, mean, devoted to divisive tales. And this is the linkage between desire and vice. Meaning, the stronger the desire, the more difficult to not do harm to, uh, to uh, acquire the objects of those desires. And so, moving out of... <laughs> Uh, desiring as a whole, particularly uh, desiring akusala dhamma, which is another term for evil, actually. The, the Buddhist term for evil is papa, um, like father, papa. <laughs> I don't know if that's um, any relation there, but uh, papa, translated commonly, you'll see in the Dhammapada as we read it, called evil or wickedness or sin or um, harmful conduct, just the same as akusala dhamma, Ah, kusala, not um, skillful or um, really not um, beneficent. I'm not sure the etymology of the word kusala, but unwholesome activity. And so going on, you with your hard road of a mouth, untrue, ignoble, destroyer of progress, right? Trying to split the sangha, evil, doer of wrong, lowest of men, wicked, degenerate, don't speak a lot here. You are headed to hell. You scatter dust to your harm. You, an offender, you malign the good, and, having engaged in many sorts of bad conduct, are going for a long time to the pit. Not forever. To, for a long time. For no one's action is annihilated. The, um, <laughs> the persistence of karma. Surely its owners get it back. An offender... The fool sees suffering for himself in the next world. He goes to the place set with iron spikes, the sharp-bladed iron stake, where the food, as is fitting, resembles a ball of heated iron. Very similar to Dr. Louise's experiences, actually, in um, Nosalar. When they, the hell wardens, speak, they don't speak lovingly. They, the hell beings, can't run away. They're not going to shelter. They lie on ashes strewn about. They enter a blazing mass of fire, tying them up with nets. They, the hell wardens, strike them with hammers made of iron. Truly, they go to a blind darkness that spreads out like a fog. 
That's the naturalistic upper house, I'd imagine. Then they enter a copper pot, a blazing mass of fire in which they cook for a long, long time, bobbing up and down in a mass of fire. There, the offender then cooks in a mixture of blood and pus. In whatever direction he leans to rest, he festers at the touch. There, the offender then cooks in an ooze where worms live, and there is no shore to which he can go, for the cooking pots all around are all the same. Then they enter the sharp sword-leaf forest where their limbs are cut off. Seizing them by the tongue with a hook, they, the hell wardens, strike them, dragging them back and forth. Then they come to the Vetarinin, hard to cross, with sharp blades, razor blades, and there they fall in. This is the ocean, the river of lie. <clears throat> similar to um, uh, Cherubitis or one of the uh, rivers of hell in Dante's Inferno. There they fall in, the fools, evildoers having done evil deeds. <clears throat> there, while they wail, voracious black and spotted dogs, jackals and flocks of ravens chew on them, vultures and crows pick at them. How hard indeed is this way of life there that offending people come to see, meaning they come to experience all that. So for the remainder of life here, a person, heedful, should do his duty. These or those loads of sesame seeds compared to the Paduma hell have been calculated by those who know as five times 10,000 crore plus 12 times 100 more crores, 10 million. So beings in the lower hells living or staying a longer time, but not forever. <clears throat> the length of the hells of suffering described here is how long the hell beings will have to dwell there. So, when in the company of those who are pure, admirable, excellent, one should constantly guard one's words and thought. So there are <clears throat> all sorts of um, extrapolations and uh, teachings that can be uh, distilled from this first of all is the notion that there are people <laughs> who could be rightly called pure, admirable, excellent. <clears throat> In today, you know, with the radical relativization of all human um, uh, concept, <laughs> meaning it, Putin said this, Putin said, uh, today in the West a belief in God is equated comparable to a belief in Satan, that those are considered relatively um, equal just in that they are beliefs. And we should, society, Western society, looks upon them equally, one, belief in God, two, belief in Satan, <clears throat> uh, with radically different moral prescriptions, radically different moral positions. Um, he was commenting on that. Uh, this teaching comes from, uh, like I said last time, the underlying view that there are absolutes in this relative uh, ocean of birth and death, in the realm of seven dimensions or multidimensionality where beings experience uh, impermanence and insubstantiality and stress and reincarnation. Uh, all of that where the constant is only change, everything's always changing. Uh, there are relative universals or there are universals in that relative um, uh, octave, multidimensional scheme of time and space and beings appearing to have uh, experiencing ch experiences changing over time. Within all that, there are some absolutes. 
such as uh, that which supports uh, greater well-being and that which goes against it, that which leads us closer to ultimate freedom and release and uh, the end of the transmigratory experience. And there's that which does not. There's that which binds and that which supports the release. And that's the uh, a, a root uh, presumption that um, there is activity that supports, uh, that, that there is a goal, <laughs> there is... There is a worthy goal to human life, and that's full freedom, release from pain and distress and confusion and any form of binding, uh, mental, physical, emotional, spiritual, and that that's done by work on self, which is work on body, mind, spirit, which is work particularly on seven chakras, which is work on what we are, the original desires that entities seek and become one, said Ra. <clears throat> and so uh, there are many people would believe there's no God, there's no purpose, there's no original desire, since there's no God and no purpose, and life is willy-nilly, willy-nilly, comes and goes, means nothing, the meaningless life, the meaningless life <laughs> lived in a flicker of time before it's annihilated forever. That's the materialist view, the nihilist view, the um, atheist view, the Marxist view. Uh, dialectical materialism that's um, somewhat absorbed in in science or modern science scientism that's somewhat repeated um, in culture heavily these days uh, even psychology is um, essentially uh, personal and um, materialistic it doesn't mean that they don't recognize the value of um, certain ways of thinking and conduct um, so as to increase well-being. But the well-being is not understood in a spiritual or reincarnational, multidimensional context. This is an important matter. And that's why lots of wanderers or spiritual mind people feel um, much deficiency going to common, ordinary, regular psychiatrists, psychologists, counselors, social workers. Because they have... they, they carry a materialist bias, a materialist worldview, and that's just common. One doesn't have to go to hell carrying a materialist viewpoint, of course. Um, there's ethical humanism, so they say, which is ethical, more or less, as much as anyone can be, but focused on the human, not the, not the divine or not the transcendent or not the multi-incarnational or multi-dimensional. But Buddhist teaching is uh, essentially multi-incarnational, multi-dimensional, and you cannot take Buddha Dhamma away, or you cannot take uh, concepts of concept, uh, karma and reincarnation out of Buddhism and, and have it remain Buddhism. And so there is some attempt to do that these days by some <laughs> closet atheists or closet skeptics or something. And Buddhism is not, again, theistic in that there's a sense that God judges, but there's um, an understanding that karma judges. And so this um, is on the page, one of the pages that I linked or sent links to, which we've done before, the description of Naraka in Buddhism called the hells, also called Niraya. Naraka is Sanskrit, Na Niraya 
is Pali, usually referred to as Hell or Hell Realm, closely related to Diyu, the Hell in Chinese mythology. And the this the you know Wikipedia again is I don't you know condemn it uh, universally just as a as it as it pertains to articles on certain very politically controversial culturally sensitive matters, but here in its introduction to lots of philosophical concepts it's all right, and in the first paragraph on the Wikipedia page on Naraka, a uh, very important point is written that a Naraka differs from the hell of Christianity and Islam and Judaism, if they fully have those notions, in two respects, differing from the hell of Christianity, which is called Gehana. Um, firstly, beings are not sent to Naraka or the hells as a result of divine judgment or punishment. It's not God judging. But <laughs> that needs to be qualified. Secondly, the length of a being's stay in a hell is not eternal though it's usually incomprehensibly long. <clears throat> and um, there is some notion that the hell, <clears throat> in Buddhism, there is some notion that the hells are purificatory, or they purify. And <clears throat> that, that um, after the stay in hell, one is reborn back into the human world. Uh, I think that's commonly the case. I think that... Um, However, um, like we see in the No Solar story, there are beings who incarnate in the human directly from the lower astral, which is the metaphysical terminology for the hells. And uh, reincarnating into the human directly from a lower astral <clears throat> um, is problematic <laughs> because there wasn't a full life review, healing, and preparation. And so you have a number of beings who are coming in and as we, uh, without preparation to be human again. And what happens commonly is they just take up, they pick up where they left off last time, last incarnation. And they're commonly very happy to be in the, in the physical. Like we said before, <clears throat> elitists, illuminists desire to live forever. I mean, the higher levels, I think they don't really play that game. But for the mid or upper middle who are technologists, uh, there's this desire to live in the body forever. But part of that impulse, I think, comes from a desire not to go back to where they came from, not to go back to the lower astrals where they came from directly. And so, <clears throat> uh, next paragraph, Wikipedia, a being is born into a naraka as a direct result of its accumulated actions, karma, resides there for a finite period of time till that karma has achieved its full result, till it's been worked off or till it is exhausted. After the karma is used up, or exhausted, or fully ripened, it will be reborn in one of the higher worlds as the result of karma that had not yet ripened. And so there's all this karma um, that the, the Buddhists have, a, have had a hard time explaining the persistence of karmic um, energetics uh, for a beingness of a no-self, or reconciling teachings of no-self, anatta, which is, you know, you can say it's no self, but again, it has to be unpacked. So teachings of anatta with the teachings of karma and karmic load and karmic seeds not yet ripened, held where? How? By a stream that is not of a solid substantive self or entity. That's a sort of philosophical um, tangle or juggle 
And yeah, it doesn't matter to me because I think that it's, if we understand that the physical is a manifestation of non-physical energetics, like non-physical energy fields, meaning seven energy fields of the seven chakras, seven bodies, right? So we have the energy fields that could be associated called bodies associated with the lower triad, first, second, third chakra, that have relation to what's called the astral body, the type of form or vehicle used by beings in any level of astral plane, which Ra calls 3D time space. That, that very useful explanation, bringing in raw material metaphysics uh, into a Buddhist understanding of uh, the persistence of karmic load despite the lack of a substantive eternal uh, self-entity. And Ra saying that they become light, realizing all of the energetics of the octave, the light that is the basis of seven rays or intelligent energy as the photon of light or prana or the particle or whatever it, however it's conceived as an, a substrate of seven vibratory rays, seven rays, vibratory conditions, um, that has a relative substantiality and that ultimately would be known to be the form or vehicle of the self or identity in sixth density, meaning in sixth density knowing we no longer seek light, we become light. Um, not, it, it, they believe we become light. Actually, they've not become light. They've come to realize the non-separation, the non-dual, the non-duality of apparent uh, environmental and uh, apparent internal um, uh, identity uh, of, of a self, that the outer and the inner is one unified field, and I is uh, that field. Yet there's a source of that field, the source of light, that's the Logos, and that's where Ra goes dropping identity in seventh density they say, will drop identity and memory. So they drop the identity as light. They longer, no longer experience memory and identity. And that's on the way, that's a mid-stance between higher self and Parabrahman, I'd say. Meanwhile, <laughs> back to hell. Um, just as with many, many traditions, many, um, UFO friend and foe, Trevor James, um, the what Dreams May Come, Robin Williams' movie, uh, No Salar, all in line with this statement from the Wikipedia page on Buddhism on Naraka. Physically, Narakas are thought of as a series of cavernous layers which extend below Jambudvipa, the human world, into the earth. So cavern, a series of cavernous layers extending below the earth that we see into the physical earth. There are several schemes for enumerating the Narakas and their torments, bop, bop, bop. And so the Mahayanists in China went to town on it. And from the Wikipedia write-up on Diyu, uh, from Chinese, um, it looks just like a Chinese city, <laughs> like Chang'an in the old days. Uh, Wikipedia says, Diyu is the realm of the dead or hell in Chinese mythology, 
loosely based on a combination of the concept of naraka, from Buddhism, traditional Chinese beliefs about afterlife, Taoist really, and a variety of popular expansions and reinterpretations of these two traditions. So everybody added their two cents or uh, two cash, little coins, and uh, what came from India regarding um, lower under underworld cosmology, cosmology of underworld or hells, lower astral, was um, uh, patched onto and mo- modified and patched onto further modified Taoist teaching on underworld, further modified over centuries by <laughs> a range of popular folk superstition religions, local myths, <laughs> local notions of different gods and things like that from the Chinese um, culture. So, Diyu is typically depicted as a subterranean maze with various levels and chambers, to which souls are taken after death to atone for the sins they committed when they were alive. The exact number of levels in Diyu and their associated deities differ between Buddhist and Taoist interpretations. Some speak of three to four courts. Others mention the ten courts of hell, each of which ruled by a judge, the ten Yama kings. And other legends speak of 18 levels. Uh, And so then you have a a great administrative situation. And from Taoism, Buddhism, traditional folk religion, Diyu as purgatory that serves to punish and renew spirits in preparation for reincarnation. And so uh, suffering as renewal, as purifying by fire, by pain. Um, a being that has uh, set up the conditions or the causes for those experiences and hopefully will learn from it. (laughs) Uh, Doesn't always happen. Commonly, the being has to, you know, fall down for a long time before they realize that they don't have to fall down and they're making themselves fall and they have option to not fall and they can do it. I can do it. I can not take the road most traveled um, upon which I've always fallen. Uh, I can take what I think is a better way, uh, particularly in thought, word, and deed, you know, in how we're thinking about things and particularly how we manifest in our speech and activity with others what we're thinking and how we see what we need. Um, I don't you know, they come to realize, we come to realize, uh, I've been making trouble for myself and I don't have to. And it's not inevitable. It's not made by the universe or you, it's made by me. I can get myself, I got myself in, I see, and now I know I can get myself out. Uh, and so, another, uh, as I said last time, the... Obviously, the religious conception of the underworld um, is heavily uh, layered conceptually by the culture uh, from which it's born. So Chinese has a sort of administrative, (laughs) a very heavily administrative hell uh, image, imagery, and other cultures have it their own way. Um, And while there are naturalistic hells, which probably predominated in ancient times, uh, hell evolves over time as well. 
And I believe that actually um, there is a notion from a Taiwanese novel, Journeys to the Underworld, that says that new hells with new punishments are created as the world changes. And so new punishments or new hells, new um, environmental conditions of hell uh, are fashioned over the centuries in line with the development of technology and civilization on the surface. And H.G. Wells, Time Machine, uh, the, all those scary, strange, googly-eyed creatures also under Earth, subterranean. So that's why uh, spellunkers beware. Uh, if you're a cave, people who love walking in caves, uh, absolutely not uh, unusually cross paths, if not physically, uh, then energetically, astrally, with um, hell dimensional beings who, um, where in which there's basically some kind of um, co-locational, co-locationality or um, uh, inter, uh, over, overlap between the physical and the lower astral non-physical in some of the underground caves. And there are, there's all sorts of stuff going on. Malta is a big place for that and uh, not, to be, not to be toyed with. Um, there are certain cities, there are certain towns, there are certain portions of the countryside where there are cave structures that very much really do go down to uh, levels that we, the physical levels associated with astral dimension. And uh, one, uh, black magicians and people who are on the negative path do that willfully for various reasons, and people who get into trouble do it and get into trouble. Um, that's a different matter. So uh, there's no doubt to me <laughs> that, that there really are hell realms and it is also just an interesting point that uh, Buddhism and Taoism and the Eastern and Hinduism, the Eastern religions, all teach that stay in hell is um, temporary, and all say that it's lawful. It isn't the fiat decision, the fiat result, the, the result of a fiat decision, a diktat from the big boss. The big boss made the laws of karma, yes, and. Um, when you drop, you know, drop the cup and it smashes onto the ground, did God do that? Well, God or the Logos, the one infinite creator eventually, uh, established the laws by which dimensions are created and, and, and maintained, uh, created the laws of light, created the law of karma. The law of karma as the, basically, um, the interactive, the inevitable um, interplay of light with itself. Um, the light associated of thought and then the physical principle, the physical world um, in which every action has a equal and compensatory or, or complementary or somehow associated uh, reaction. Action-reaction. Cause-effect. Kama-vipaka. That's all the law of karma is, except it's extended to the non-physical dimensions of mind and uh, associated with rebirth into different dimensionalities and bodies. Uh, but, but the West went a certain way 
um, in a bad way, <laughs> or some of the bad ways of the West. Uh, individualism, I think, is great, but um, the West has fallen into a toxic individualism, I think, while the East has its own issues with collectivism, toxic collectivism. But they're sort of midway between traditional collectivism, the individual sub, 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 subservient to the state, or, or to the family, actually. You see, before the individual was subservient to the state, or that individual submissive, sub, submitting subordinate to the state, which we see everywhere in the world, or we see that tendency everywhere in the world, every nation east to west, where the state wants the individual subordinated to the state. Before that, in the East, you basically had the individual subordinated to the family system. And so, um, like in the traditional Chinese, Japanese nomenclature, uh, you say your family name first. Uh, Mao, um, Mao Zedong, uh, the family name is Mao. Uh, Li Tongkwei, you know, the family name is Li. Um, Mandelker Scott. Hello, Mandelker Scott. And so it sounds kind of weird in English to say uh, uh, Jones Bob. Hello, Jones Bob. Or Smith Jane. Hello, Smith Jane. Jane Smith. Uh, that's, I think, uh, associated with the traditional conservative Eastern subordination of the individual to the family system. That can be toxic or not. Uh, Confucius was trying to detox it and uh, put it in a certain perspective where, you know, like like um, uh, the ruler is sub subservient to the will of, of heaven. And if virtuous has the mandate of heaven, the ministers in the court are subservient to the king, the people of the nation are subservient to the ministers and the king, the family system is subservient to the father, the, so the father is subservient to the state, uh, the mother to the father, the children to the mother, the younger children to the older children, the young, uh, nobody is subservient or subordinate to the younger children, that's why they have cats and dogs, or dolls, but <laughs> um, that whole system works perfectly if everybody's virtuous, <laughs> if, the, if the king is virtuous because he, she, king I guess is a guy, um, knows the way of release or values virtue, the, the, the value of virtue, uh, highly valuing, rightly valuing virtue, which is basically wisdom and compassion or truth and kindness and balance and win-win, non-control or support for all, uh, then the whole system can work quite well. Uh, I think the East, just as an aside, is probably transiting from uh, some kind of confused collectivism uh, to um, a confused individualism. <laughs> They're not quite fully in toxic individualism, but um, depends on the nation, depends on, it's quite individual. So the point here is that there is virtue vice, there is harm and benefit, there is that which supports um, release and that which binds further. And so what's good is um, ultimately that which supports release. What's bad or papa 
is actually that which supports uh, further binding, whether you know it or not. On the other hand, or from a different view, uh, some people may say, don't do that, it's bad, when it isn't bad. <laughs> and Or when there's nothing really that much bad about it. And very interesting, in the um, write-up, where was that? There was some discussion, um, I think it was on Wikipedia, where, uh, so, so Kokalika was a follower of Devadatta. And uh, Devadatta, this is actually on the page, Anantarika Karma. And this is the worst kind of karma in the Buddhist system. Uh, quote, heinous crime that through karmic process brings immediate disaster, Anantarika means an antara an antara means not antara an, like an atman or anatta mean not atman an anna an antara means no interval and so an antarika is a being who's experiencing non-interval rebirth results immediately come to fruition in the next life <clears throat> or the person cannot live much beyond the commission of the uh, activity that's considered the the crime or the sin or the uh, wrong action or speech. Uh, these are considered so heinous, this is the Wikipedia page, that even non-Buddhists must avoid them. <laughs> that's a strange thing to say. That's where you get strange things in Wikipedia. <clears throat> um, I mean, the, the purpose of Buddhism is not to make Buddhists. It's to actually help beings free themselves from suffering and uh, go from desire and discontent uh, to peace and clarity and increasing freedom. So uh, Buddhists and non-Buddhists ought to avoid uh, what leads to further pain. Uh, committing such a crime prevents the perpetrator from attaining the four stages of awakening in the life. And these are the big five in terms of sins or crimes in Buddhism. Intentionally not by accident, but intentionally murdering one's father, one's mother, or killing an arhan, uh, which I guess is possible. They killed Mahamogalana. Shedding the blood of a Buddha, because you can't kill him unless he wished to be killed. And then, number five, creating a schism in the Sangha. And that's what Kokalika was doing. And interestingly, uh, <laughs> with some... Um, uh, this may uh, be a uh, useful curio for some people. Uh, in the section on Devadatta, uh, who tried to throw a large rock at Gautama and incited an elephant to kill the Buddha, uh, where the Buddha pacified the elephant by sending him metta, loving-kindness. Uh, according to Sutta Pitaka, meaning the suttas were... <laughs> that uh, from which we're drawing eventually. After trying to kill Sakyamuni Buddha or Gautama a number of times, Devadatta set up his own Buddhist monastic order by splitting the Sangha. Uh, and that's what Kokalika was supporting. During his efforts to become leader of his own Sangha, he proposed five extra strict rules for monks, which he knew Buddha would not allow, right? Make you an offer you can't accept. Devadatta's reasoning as, oh, so clever, oh, so clever. Devadatta's reasoning was that after he had proposed those rules and Buddha had not allowed him, 
Devadatta could claim that he followed and practiced the five rules, making him a better and purer monk. It's um, <laughs> clever, uh, clever uh, and stupid. So, um, establishing um, it, it's. I mean, this is international politics. Geopolitics looks like this all the time. Threatening to do something unless you do, you know, kind of blackmail. Um, I'm going to punch you. I'm going to do this and that and the other thing if you don't do X, Y, and Z. Setting up more and more uh, unreasonable demands that are known to not, that are known will likely be rejected or known will surely be rejected. So then one has the rejection of those demands, which are all unreasonable or excessive or manipulative and, and um, uh, outside uh, reasonability, uh, the um, uh, certain rejection of my unreasonable demands will then give me, or I will then use that as a justification to do something that I always wanted to do. And so what he always wanted to do was set up his own Sangha. And then by saying... The Sangha must do these things, and Gautama said no. He smiles <laughs> and says, good, glad you said no. Uh, I will now set myself up as the leader of another Sangha or a split in the Sangha because I'll do these and you won't. One of these five extra rules required monks to be vegetarian. <laughs> so, hmm. so, not to put down a vegetarian, but... Um, Chinese Buddhists think that Gautama was vegetarian. Here we see the Sutta Pitaka referenced in saying that this was one of the rules that evil Devadatta uh, proposed to Gautama, which was rejected, uh, which was considered um, unnecessary by Gautama. Um, and so, mm -hmm, I'm sure there are some people using um, their vegetarianism, obviously, as a um, as a um, imagined uh, basis of superiority, um, Yeshua said, "Not what a man puts in his mouth that causes sin, but what comes out." I think that's true, and I think Gautama would agree. Um, but there were rules against killing animals or eating meat from animals known to be killed for you, or having the monk call for an animal to be killed to eat the meat. But aside from that, uh, you didn't have to be vegetarian. And so um, it's just interesting that that was one of the five rules proposed by Devadatta who tried to kill the Buddha and created a schism and he shed blood of the Buddha and then um, went to hell. <laughs> and uh, that was bad for him. And so accounts claim that toward the end of Devadatta's life, the boss of Kokalika, he was struck by a severe remorse caused by past misdeeds and did indeed manage to approach Buddha and took, retook refuge in the Triple Gem. So he joins, then tries to create a schism and put himself on top of the other order. Then um, he's thrown out. Then he was allowed to retake refuge, died shortly afterwards. He was condemned to suffer for several hundred millennia in Avicii one of the lowest hells. And it was also said he'd eventually be admitted into the heavens as a Pratyeka Buddha. I'm not sure about that. So, 
there you go. <laughs> Some food for thought. Now, uh, the Dhammapada stanzas on evil, Dhammapada 9, uh, explain, you'll see some, I mean, in general, the Dhammapada was compiled from Gautama's direct teachings, utterances, in response to particular situations in the community, in the Sangha, in the lay community, in the greater area of uh, wherever he was traveling, in Magadha and that whole northern India zone. But particularly, um, the affairs of monks and lay people brought to his attention or directly witnessed. And so we'll see some basic teaching here on avoidance of evil or harmful activity that leads to further binding. So, Dhammapada 9, translated by Tanasaro, um, it stands at 116 and on. Be quick in doing what's admirable. Restrain your mind from what's evil. When you're slow in making merit, evil delights the mind. If a person does evil, that's the word papa or akusala dhamma, he shouldn't do it again and again, shouldn't develop a penchant for it. To accumulate evil brings pain, and that's the whole point. What's called evil or bad is called such and valued lower than something called good or, or, or virtue because it brings pain. Going on, if a person makes merit, he should do it again and again. He should develop a penchant for it. To accumulate merit brings ease. So accumulation of evil brings pain. Accumulation of merit brings ease. So that's a very interesting uh, dichotomy or, or um, juxtaposition there. The opposite of pain, not necessarily pleasure. I mean, we can say it. it's pleasure. But we can also call it ease, or consider that the opposite of pain is ease. Ease as well-being, as uh, comfortable with oneself, which means increasingly comfortable with everyone or anyone. Now, it's hard to be comfortable when people are cursing you, hating you, spitting on you, punching you, this and that. It's not assumed that one would feel ease with that. It's assumed that one would make right action or right speech, right action, right response to move away from such a person. But um, pain, you can see, I mean, you know, it's very, for those who see mind through the face, you can see the mind of pain through the face. Likewise, you can see the mind of ease through the face, and the mind of ease is a mind of merit. And a mind of, a face of pain is a mind of sin, or harmful activity, or chronic um, penchant for that which is harmful to self and other. To call it evil, you know, it's a little heavy-handed word. Um, but <laughs> there is that which brings pain, and there's that which binds further, and there's that which tangles, and there's that which is a misrepresentation. To say it happened when it didn't, to say I did it when I didn't, to say he did it when he didn't, to say it's up when it's down, to say it's good when it's harmful, to say I'm happy when I'm not, to say all's cool, I'm okay when I'm not. It's called dishonesty. Uh, all that could be called evil or wrong or bad simply because it binds one further. Uh, stances 119, 120. 
even the evil meet even the evil meet with good fortune as long as their evil has yet to mature right so karmic ripening in time but when it's matured that's when they meet with evil so the evil one is the the evil person is the evil doer and it's not really an evil being it's a being doing evil attached to it clinging to it valuing the fruits of what could be called evil or harmful actions serve to self that's all and yet they won't experience it fully all the time the consequences of that because there is other there are other karmic seeds ripening before the ripening of the seeds of their um, akusala dhamma then even the good meet with bad fortune as long as they're good as yet to mature but when it's matured that's when they meet with good fortune so karmic ripening over time um the last shall be first and the first shall be last i think that's what we will see with the current sanjigen or third density end times outcome is that just like the movie mars attacks the cute strange comical grotesque movie of uh, tim burton um in the end who wins well the kind the the very innocent sweet uh, grandmother who's senile the senile sweet pure grandmother who loves country music and her grandson who loves her and goes out of his way to help her who's very sweet and the president's daughter who um is um, as good as she can be and cute and um kindly and not interested in any kind of games and a black family of an ex boxer um who have two little boys and a mother who's working hard and the father comes back to be with them and he's doing his best and a new age woman a Shirley MacLaine type um very well played by what's her name the woman from American Beauty great she she always plays the same role she's always the same but she makes it despite her being love of wisdom new age who initially welcomed the martians and said welcome to earth uh, our friends and, and tom jones makes it <laughs> and uh, some birds and deer and squirrels make it uh and the mexican um orchestra makes it uh and everybody else gets uh, whacked <laughs> and the civilization falls apart and america seems to join with mexico uh the last shall be first and the first were taken out by the higher evil of the martians in mars attacks a uh, passion play morality play very interesting movie where lots of uh, a-list actors get killed in absurd ways uh that's strange and that looks to me like the first becoming last after the tribulation you heard it here going on uh verses 12122 uh which have a asterisk for some reason um just on some notes don't underestimate evil quote meaning thinking it won't amount to much a water jar fills even with water falling in drops with evil even if bit by bit habitually the fool fills himself full don't underestimate merit it won't amount to much a water jar fills even with water falling in drops with merit 
even if bit by bit, habitually, the enlightened one fills himself. So merit and an evil or uh, accumulation of karma, positive merit, negative evil or harmful ways, is um, slow, gradual, imperceptible even. Yes, yes, yes. And, um, you know, what, what's really critical is who you hang with. <laughs> and uh, that's one thing. And then what you do when you're alone. Who you hang with is who you shall resonate with. And what you do alone is really where the mind goes. And um, Rick Wiles, True News, talking about some Christian view. Uh, a man, somebody said, you know, a man is really measured by what he does alone in private. That's true. Um, not only. But uh, anyway, karma is, a, is um, very much imperceptibly accumulated. And this is an interesting point also that could be elaborated on. Going on, uh, I'll close up this uh, sutta, this um, Dhammapada chapter. Like a merchant with a small but well-laden caravan, a dangerous road, like a person who loves life, a poison, one should avoid evil deeds. So, uh, one should avoid evil deeds and speech. <laughs> Like a merchant with a small, well-laden caravan uh, going on a dangerous road or a person loving life and poison. But the next verse is very interesting. If there's no wound on the hand, that hand can hold poison. Poison won't penetrate where there's no wound. There's no evil for those who don't do it. There's, um, I mean, who goes to hell safely? Yeshua went for three days, so they say. I think that's very reasonable. Um, the No Solar rescue team goes there regularly, but they don't live there. And so there's some <laughs> extrapolation useful. Um, why don't they set up an outpost? Um, I think, number one, they have better things to do. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Self-sacrifice has value, but it's not a supreme value. Uh, meaning it's very, very useful for souls moving from third to fourth density. And in some cases, it's um, absolutely the best and right action or response. But not it's not the path. Uh, the path um, is sacrificing the inessential, not sacrificing my life for you. There's a big difference. And so the sacrifice of my life for you, which is right and good, um, for those moving from third to fourth density is wrong and distorted for those moving out of fourth to fifth, it seems to me. So uh, sacrifice my future life and well-being for your benefit is um, unconditional giving to protect the beloved. That's a mighty deed, moving one from third to fourth density or harvesting. But it ain't moving out of fourth density to fifth and sixth. Uh, there, seems to me, there is sacrifice. But the sacrifice is of the inessential, of attachment, of delusion, of harmful habit, of the values that are comfortable but um, unhelpful, comfortably numb, getting beyond the comfortably numb, uh, shattering armor, 
um, sacrificing and surrendering that which is akusala uh, in mind and spirit, particularly in mind, really. And so the, the deep work of transforming green, blue, indigo, that is not done by sacrificing your physical life for beings in every single lifetime. <laughs> so, uh, but those who have no wound can go to the places of wounding, but they don't live there. Uh, poison doesn't penetrate where there's no wound. <clears throat> um, some people can walk into the um, middle of a real infection, a real pandemic, and uh, not wear any protective gear and walk out okay. It's very common. I mean, you know, <laughs> there are very saintly people who hug lepers, not leopard, lepers, and people who are, you know, clearly uh, contagion, contagious with virulent, lethal, you know, bacteria and viruses, if there are such. And um, by love, they're protected. And so love as the greatest protector is the way of healing wounds. The way of healing our wounding is love. And that leads to a certain protection from poison, from the harmful. And particularly leads to uh, uprooting desires that lead to harm. That's the point. Protection from harm is non-triggerability to uh, act um, in ways of harm. Non-triggerable because one doesn't have the underlying distortions to be triggered. Associated with not having the underlying desires for such activity. Uh, that would be triggered into manifestation. Not being triggered, uh, not uh, truly untriggerable. That doesn't mean keep a stiff upper lip. Stiff upper lip. It means not and not suppressive. Uh, honest, uh, sincere, uh, willing to feel, willing to freely think. But in that, not being triggered, triggered to emotional charge, or harmful response of speech and deed. Um, is of freedom from the underlying desires uh, to engage in such activity. The, the willingness is no longer there. Where there's a will, there's a way. Where there's no will, there ain't no way, and there won't be much triggering. Um, and that's the purification of motive, purity of motive. Uh, and that comes from uh, being more and more and more well at peace. And so as uh, merit leads to ease, to accumulate merit brings ease. That ease uh, detriggers one, is a detriggering, is a deep, harmful root cutting, dissolving um, act, um, phenomenon. Going on, uh, like a merchant with a small but well-laden caravan, a dangerous road, like a person who loves life, a poison, one should avoid evil deeds. If there's no wound, this is the same, isn't it? <laughs> or maybe I'm reading the same. Okay. If there's no wound on the hand, the hand can hold poison. Poison won't penetrate where there's no wound. And likewise, those that are trying to get our goad or goat or get us to be crazy or um, to provoke us will fail when we're not triggerable. It's like we look at them and think, what are you doing? <laughs> I don't 
believe what you're saying, so I won't act as you seem to want to provoke me to act. Um, but I am observing how distorted you are. Whoever harasses an innocent man, a man pure without blemish, the evil comes right back to the fool like fine dust thrown against the wind. That's right from Kokalakasuta. Some are born in the human womb, evildoers in hell. Those on the good course go to heaven, while those without effluent asrava, totally unbound. And so that's um, birth and dimensionalities. Born in the human, is the human realm, one of the six in Buddhism. Hell, evildoers go to hell, or naraka niraya, one of the lower states of woe. Those on the good course, or merit, with merit, go to heaven, or go to higher kamaloka and rupaloka. Those without effluent, totally unbound, leave the octave. And finally, 127, 28. Not up in the air, nor in the middle of the sea, nor going into a cleft in the mountains, nowhere on earth or off earth, is a spot to be found where you could stay and escape your evil deed. Nor from past lives to today. And um, I had a very dramatic experience with that once. Not up in the air, nor in the middle of the sea, nor going into a cleft in the mountains, nowhere on earth, is a spot to be found where you could stay and not succumb to death. So, everywhere in any dimensionality, not only on earth, uh, can one, nowhere can one escape karmic stream. Uh, one can change it, of course, but that, one, that, that doesn't eliminate it. It just means that it's modified or uh, diluted. Then, there's nowhere one can go to avoid death. And that really means the end of a body in a dimension. Um, that's the point. Uh, Buddhism is, is uh, most suitable for those who are tired of dying. <laughs> not, not necessarily tired of living. Tired of living may be a, a, a reason for more rebirth. But tired of dying, uh, at best, is, is one who... Um, uh, no longer gets a kick from champagne, no longer kick from champagne, and no longer gets a kick from incarnation or sensuality or even mental activity. This is really, I mean, the guys around Gautama, uh, they, were, uh, they were tired of becoming. They, they really didn't want anything more than release from the round of becoming, birth and death. And that was their single desire, radical purity of motive, or focusing of motive, that was their only motive. And so, that's not for everyone, and that's a certain level. Uh, let me just see if there's anything from the Dhammapada chapter 22 on hell that I'd read. I think this will be enough for today. We're getting close to the end, and I'll wrap it up with this. Uh, Let's just read the last few. Ashamed of what's not shameful, not ashamed of what is, beings adopting wrong views go to a bad destination. So these um, four verses, 316 to 319, Dhammapada 22, hell, talking about hell and wrong view. So, ashamed of what's not shameful, 
like I'm ashamed to be studying in the library reading ancient Buddhist texts because all my friends who tell are at the party, but I'm such a loser. I'm reading on Buddhist texts or something. <laughs> That's shamed of what's not shameful. Uh, not ashamed of what is. Beings adopting wrong views go to a bad destination. Seeing danger where there is none, and no danger where there is. Beings adopting wrong views go to a bad destination. Imagining error where there is none, and no error where there is. Beings adopting wrong views go to a bad destination. Finally, but knowing error as error, non-error as non, beings adopting right views go to a good destination. And so the heaven for the virtuous, a good destination, higher rebirth, and then freedom eventually from all rebirth, um, very much depends on right view. And so right view is the basis of right speech and action, which is the basis of uh, shila, uh, virtue, morality, ethics, which is the basis of samadhi and prajna, of course, meditation and insight and awakening and release. Uh, but particularly, uh, right views leading to right speech, action, and livelihood, or non-harmful ways of mind and speech and action, or kusaladhamma, wholesome ways, is the basis of merit. And merit is the basis of going to a good destination. Right views lead to right actions, or right activity of mind and body and speech and um, thought, belief, so right view and right thinking, right view comes from basically uh, sincere seeking. The people who, sincere and persistent seeking. There is effort <laughs> required to keep seeking to know. And there's effort required to put into practice what we know. Right? In the movie The International. Excellent, excellent movie, Clive Owen, explaining banks and debt very deeply and uh, all sorts of tangled international play, corporate play. Um, talking about uh, one of the meeting in the New York office of the DA or something or other, saying um, nobody wants the truth because um, the truth demands uh, some kind of responsibility. I, I forgot the right quote, but uh, the, the the hardship of truth, the burden of honesty and revealing the truth is that it uh, compels action in accord with the truth. You know, when you know it, when you, when you know what is, inevitably one must, conf one must deal with it. <laughs> and in general, <laughs> the, 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 normal way of dealing with truth is to live in accord with it somehow. Uh, but uh, if you're not using truth to manipulate and control, which can be done, you're uh, seeking to accord your thought, word, and deed with the truth, with any truth, with whatever is real. Uh, that is a responsibility and a burden and a piece of work. And um, seeking truth um, is, leads to continued responsibility like the uh, result of good works is more work. Uh, yeah, 
Right. <laughs> the capable one uh, has more demands put upon that one. And the uh, finder of truth can't really forget what they found and somehow must factor in that truth that they cannot forget, uh, that they've seen clearly, into all future thought, word, and deed, and their views and their activity and their lifestyle and their way in the world. So the burden of truth is the responsibility of action in accordance with it, and yet that's uh, one must be willing to take that to develop right view. Right view is the truth of um, you know our condition and the truth of the basis of my condition, the causes, and the truth uh, that I'm in some discomfort or some well-being, both, and that it's really better for me to <laughs> eliminate the further causes of my unwellness and further the causes of my current wellness. That's kind of better, I'd say. But that may require some changes and update and um, uh, letting things go and taking in other things and um, making effort in accord with what I now know as helpful and harmful or causal to the helpful and the harmful the causes of merit and ease versus uh, pain, and so it takes a you know it takes a strong stomach, <clears throat> and it takes strong will to to perse persevere in seeking and living in accord with right view, and yet then that really would because it's really the right view of what brings long-term welfare and benefit unbinding greater well-being. That's the right. That's the view. Those are the types of views that, that um, are here called right or wrong. The views of what, what, um, what makes my future? What makes my future? Well, my views and my speech and action make my future. Uh, the speech and the action come out of certain views. Those views are not fully in the light of truth, but partially, and partially mistaken. And where they're mistaken, it's quite likely that my speech and action will lead to consequences that harm me and you. And where there's harm to me and you, it can be traced back to the causes in speech and action that are traced back to the views that are wrong. Oh, I thought that you meant to put me down. I thought that you were doing those things, but I see you're not. Dot, 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 dot. And so, anyway, right view of life and self and path and goals and value, uh, right values, you know, value, a value scheme that leads to greater well being. <laughs> These are the important views that need to be made right. <laughs> Uh, self and life and purpose and path and goal. These are the principles uh, of spiritual evolution that are critical, seems to me. And adopting right views anent all that um, leads to merit, leads to ease, leads to going to a good destination, leads to long-term welfare and benefit, and doesn't lead to hell. Uh, so... 
Um, meanwhile, we can see beings in, you know, Ross said, Earth life offers an adequate hell and a more than adequate, uh, an adequate heaven and a more than adequate hell. If we look carefully at the mind of beings around us, we can see somewhat what dimension or what realm in which they live, actually. So, because they're there, the mind is there now, not yet the body. Any case, I hope that was helpful. <laughs> it's pretty heavy, heavy. Um, next time, we're going to continue with Sutta Nipata to the next uh, Sutta down the line, which is Nalaka Sutta, the second to the last of the Mahavaga chapter, uh, translated by Tanasaro and Olenziki, Olenziki. Uh, gurgling loudly or tunalaka. It's really about tunalaka. And Tanasaro says, a sutta in two parts. The first part gives an account of events soon after the birth of the Bodhisattva, meaning Gautama, soon after his birth. Second part describes the way of the sage. So we'll look into all that next time. And um, it's a long sutta. So we'll see. We may take one or two weeks on it. In any case, I hope that was helpful. And there's much more to say, but I can't say it today. And um, I hope you can make use of this information to get a clearer, clearer right view on how action brings merit and ease or leads one to harm and possibly rebirth in a lower zone. And then take that uh, clear eye to um, seeing more clearly the people around us and the society and changes. So, thank you again. I hope you're all well. Please take good care of yourselves, and good night.